All right, we have made it to the second section of the National Board Review. So the second section is Community Dental Health. So we'll start off with the introduction here and then we'll move on into the meat and potatoes. So the introduction we have, dental hygienists play a crucial role in dental public health by becoming educators, directors of community-based prevention programs, members of the epidemiological survey teams, and active participants in programs for the dentally neglected. With increased emphasis on improving public access to oral health care, the opportunities for dental hygienists to promote oral health in the community are numerous. The procedures in community health practice parallel those in private dental practice, even though the dental Public health programs treat the community as a patient versus the individual seeking care in a private practice setting. The similarities can be summarized as follows. So we've got two columns here. There is a left column and a right column. On the left side is the community health practice. On the right side, we're talking about private practice. So visualize this and memorize it as well. So we'll go back to the left side with the community health practice. We've got survey and needs assessment, data analysis, program planning, program operation, funding, and appraisal or evaluation. Now moving on to the private practice. We have health history and examination, diagnosis, treatment planning, the treatment, payment, and evaluation. So those are the two there. Again, memorize those. Now we're moving on to the next section, which is the four governmental levels of community dental health. So the four governmental levels of community health are the international, federal, state, and local. So I'm going to go back up and we're going to talk about the international first. It coordinates programs for underdeveloped nations and gathers epidemiological data for comparison across nations. Develops means to summarize treatment needs of international populations, utilizing minimal equipment. So example, the Community Periodontal Index of Treatment Needs or the CPITN. Also, the World Health Organization, or WHO, is a prime example. Now, the next level is the federal. It acts on oral health pro problems of national significance, primarily within the jurisdiction of the, of the Department of Health and Human Services, or the DHHS. Other examples of federal agencies involved with community health issues are the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC. This is located in Atlanta, Georgia. Health Resources and Services Administration, or the HRSA, the National Institute of Health, which is the NIH, the National Institute of Dental and Cranial Facial Research, also known as the NIDCR, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, which is the AH. RQ. Now moving on to the third level, that is the state level. It provides consultation services to local health departments, directly administers some programs, especially statewide programs. And now the last level is local. That is the directly administers uh, the county and the city programs. Initiates dental health legislative measures such as fluoridation. Now we're moving on to the next section, which is the epidemiology epidemiology and we will take a short break and come right back all right we are moving on to the second section of the community dental health uh, that is the second topic that we are going over for the national board so 
the, the topic that we're going to be talking about is the epidemiology. This refers to the study of health and disease in populations. It requires that that disease be measured quantitatively. Quantitative data is in information that can be counted or expressed numerically and is often collected in experiments, manipulated and statistically analyzed. This type of data can be represented visually in graphs and charts. The epidemiological studies usually report findings in terms of either prevalence or incidence of disease. Memorize these two, know the difference between these two. So I'm going to go over the definitions, listen to this as many times as you need to, to make sure you know the difference. So we're going to start off with prevalence usually refers to the estimated population of people who are managing a disease at any given time. Incidence refers to the annual diagnosis rate or the number of new cases of a particular disease diagnosed each year. These two statistics to statistic types can differ. A short-lived disease like flu can have an, a high annual incidence but low prevalence, while a lifelong disease like diabetes has a low annual incidence but high prevalence. Now we're moving on to the uses for epidemiology. Examines effects of host factors, age, gender, race, immunity, biological causes such as bacteria, virus, or fungus, the physical environment such as sun exposure, industrial pollutants, radiation, and lifestyle consideration such as the socioeconomic status, drug, alcohol consumption, and diet on the health. So now we are going to go through a list that you also must memorize. We have collecting data to describe normal biological processes. This, these are all uses for the epidemiology. And the next on the list is understanding the natural history of a disease process, measuring the distribution of a disease in a given population, identifying determinants of the disease. Testing the hypothesis for prevention and control of a disease through studies, planning and evaluating health care services. And now we also have studies outbreaks. So here's some more definitions and terms that you must know. So we have the epidemic. This is an unexpectedly large number of cases of disease in a particular population at a particular place and time. So an example would be meningitis, out, meningitis outbreak among senior high school students enrolled at Bora High School during fall quarter 2010. So very specific there. Now we also have endemic. This is a disease that occurs regularly in a population as a matter of course. So an example, it would be like hay fever during the spring. Now, the last um, studies or study would be like a pandemic. This is an outbreak of disease over a wide geographical area, often worldwide. Example, worldwide swine flu scare. All right, I hope you're still with me. We're gonna move on to the research methods. This is also very important, so make sure that you memorize all of these. We're gonna go over descriptive studies, experimental studies and analytical studies. So we're gonna start off with the first, which is descriptive studies. Designed to describe the extent of a disease or condition within a population and its relationship with other variables. So it determines who is getting the disease and where and when the disease is occurring. 
The next thing that we're the next research method that we'll discuss is experimental studies. This test hypothesis to establish the cause. So when you think experimental studies, think cause. We are finding the cause here. So in research, a hypothesis is a suggested explanation of a phenomenon. A null hypothesis, this is a definition here, referred to as an H and then an O, is a hypothesis which a researcher tries to disprove or nullify. An alternative hypothesis, sometimes denoted as an H1, is an alternate way to explain the phenomenon. So examples, um, the null hypothesis is daily flossing decreases interproximal caries rates. And an example, sorry, that would have been an example of the, alternate, of the alternative hypothesis. Now the null hypothesis would be daily flossing does not, does not is the key word here, the key words, does not lower interproximal caries rates. That would be an example of a null hypothesis because that is a hypothesis which a researcher tries to disprove or nullify. So we're going to go back and explain more on the experimental studies. It is carry, carried out under controlled situations. So example, a laboratory. So uses control groups and treatment groups. So a control group is experimental treatment is withheld. The test subjects receive placebos in a controlled group and a treatment group, they receive experimental treatment. We're gonna continue on the experimental studies. It involves blindness and blindness's researcher is unaware of whether test subject is in control or treatment group during the study. This helps prevent bias. Remember that. Uh, may also be double-blinded. Neither the researcher nor the subject knows who is receiving experimental treatment. This is the best way to prevent the bias. Best way. Double-blinded study. Now we're going to move on to our last part here with the analytical studies. So at this point, we've gone over the descriptive studies, experimental studies. Now we're on the third, which is the analytical studies. So this is aimed at testing hypothesis. There are three main types of analytical studies. So the three main types are retrospective, prospective, and longitudinal study. So we'll start off with the retrospective or the case control study. This examines whether a past association exists between an exposure of, of interest and development of a present condition. So an example would be um, ingestion of lead containing paint and subsequent development of learning disabilities. The second type would be prospective study, study in which the subjects are observed and data is collected over time to determine if a disease or condition develops. So an example would be caries rates of children living in fluoridated communities are compared to those children who live in non-fluoridated areas over a period of 10 years. Now, the last type of analytical study is the longitudinal study. Group is studied over an extended period of time, refers to any type of study that is long term. A retrospective or prospective study is considered longitudinal if the study is conducted is conducted over a long period of time. So longitudinal study, think long period of time.
All right, we're gonna continue the fun with research samples. So we have representative portion of the population. There are types of samples. We've got five different types of samples. I'm gonna go through all five samples and then I'm going to give the definition of each sample. So we have random sample, stratified sample, systematic sample, judgment sample, and then convenience sample. So let's go back up and talk about the random sample. Every element in the population has an equal chance of being selected, reduces the chance of bias. So example, pick names out of a phone book. Very random, right? So now the second type of sample is stratified sample. Selecting an element according to certain subgroups. Accomplished by selecting a, a proportionate number of participants from each subgroup for the sample. So an example would be identify all the dental hygiene schools attending this board review and select two members from each school. The third sample is systematic sample. Every Select every nth to participate. So an example would be count off by six and then form groups based on like numbers. Now the fourth sample is judgment sample. Someone familiar with the population selects the sample. High chance of bias here. So you don't really want to use a judgment. I mean, it's even in the name, right? It's judgment sample. Uh, an example of this would be your class president selects fellow students to be in one of four table clinic groups. The fifth research sample is the convenience sample. Sample group is chosen based solely on convenience. So an example would be the first 10 people to walk through the door today were asked to fill out a questionnaire. Now we're going to move on to the variables. So variables, what is being observed or measured? There are two types of variables. You can have a dependent variable or an independent variable. So we'll start off with a dependent that the outcome of interest should change in response to some intervention. A helpful hint here for the dependent variable, the dependent variable depends on the independent variable. I'm going to say that again. This might be helpful for you to remember for the test. So the, de the depend dent variable depends on the independent variable. So now we'll move on to the independent variable. We have the intervention. So a, a memory tip is the N, the IN is both independent and intervention. So you want to remember, you want to link those two words together, independent and intervention. The independent variable is manipulated to produce a response to the dependent variable. We're moving on to basic biostatistical concepts. This allows data to be quantified, represents the mathematics of collection, organization and interpretation of numeric data. There are two types of statistics here, descriptive statistics and inferential statistics. All right, guys, we're back. And now we're going over, I'm gonna go over the last part that we ended with last time. This is basic biostatistical concepts allows data to be quantified, represents the mathematical of collections, organizations, and interpretation of numeric data. There are two types of statistics. We have descriptive statistics and inferential statistics. So now we're flowing into descriptive statistics. 
used to describe, present, summarize, and organize numerical data. This measures of central tendency. Now we're going on to a, what a data matrix is. So I'm going to give you the definition for a data matrix, which is arranges data scores from the lowest to highest measures, utilizing the statistics supplied above. The data matrix would be, and there is an example of what a data matrix would look like. And it's basically columns of numbers, and um, they are from the top to the bottom, the highest number or the lowest number to the highest, which that is what was the definition. So now we're moving on to the frequency of distribution. This measures how often each score occurs. Three main methods to group scores. We have ungrouped, cumulative, or grouped. So I'm going to say the term and then we're gonna go over the definition. So we've got an ungrouped scores. This is data is presented in ascending or descending order along the frequency of each score. So example, hatch marks. The next term is cumulative scores. This is frequency of occurrence of scores up to and including any given value in the data set. An example would be 3,547 students received a 75 or higher and passed the national board examination. <laughs> And the last term is grouped scores. This is grouping variables into consecutive intervals. So an example would be grading. All right, so now we're moving on to measures of central tendency. Memorize what this means. So we've got frequency of distribution is plotted out on an XY graph, resulting in a pictorial representation of the data. Three measures describe the central tendency of a distribution of scores. We've got the mean, the median, and the mode. And I'm sure you guys remember this from high school, if not earlier. So let's go over it, it'll be fun. So let's dust the cobwebs off and go over first the mean. So we'll again, I'll say the term and then we'll go over the definition second. So mean is the arithmetic, arithmetic average of scores. So the total of our average of scores, the most common measure of central tendency, sensitive to extreme values. Make sure that you know that. To calculate, add all the scores together and divide by the number of scores. And the next term is the median. So the median or the midpoint. This divides the distribution of scores into two equal parts. 50% of the scores will be above the median, 50% will be below. This is not affected by extreme high or low scores. To calculate, place scores in a data matrix and locate the midpoint. And it does give an example, example using sample data, um, which you don't have. And um, I can place this or I can put this in the note section, but the median is 92. Uh, so we're going to move on to the mode, which is the next term. And the definition for the mode is the most frequently occurring score within the data matrix affects the skew of the graph. It affects the skew of the graph and is the most frequently occurring score within the data matrix. It says to calculate using an ungrouped tally system, identify the score that occurs most often. There you go. All right, and now 
we our next graph or the next section is a graph and it is explaining or giving an example of a normal curve and so we've got a normal curve and it's pointing out the mean median and mode so we will continue on and the there's more graphs and we can explain what those mean the best that I can and again these will be put into the notes section so you will have a visual for each um, term that we go over so continuing on to the next section is measures of dispersion This section is measures of dispersion. Describes how wide the scores are around a central point. In a norm, normal curve, the central point would be the mean, median, and mode. So we have a we have two different terms here. We have the range and the standard deviation. So first we're going to go over the range. The range is the difference between the high and the low score of a data matrix affected by extremely high or low scores. Using the practice numbers, the range would be eight. So again, you don't, you can't see this, um, but this will be placed in the notes section. So we'll go on to the next term, which is standard deviation. The standard deviation represents the square root of the sample variance. Don't panic, it says. Um, what you do need to know is that the SD or the standard deviation is the most commonly used method of dispersion in oral hygiene research and reflects the range within the data matrix. The bigger the range or the standard deviation, the wider the distribution curve. So like what I just said, so we've got a picture of a small or thin, narrow uh, standard deviation curve. And then the second picture is a wider, if you can just picture that, a, a wider hill as opposed to being a very steep hill. And that saying that uh, the, that means it's a bigger range wider distribution curve. So now we are moving on to what a positive skew is. So a positive skew, when the more scores fall in the lower range, the curve will have a positive skew when plotted. A negative skew, so a negative skew, when more scores fall in the higher range, the curve will have a negative skew when plotted. So again, just memorize, we'll memorize the definition, but also have an idea and a picture in your head what this will look like. Now we're moving on to the inferential statistics. This allows one to generalize findings from the sample study to a larger population. Example, the, the Hopewood House study found that orphans living in an Australian facility where their diet consists primarily of vegetables with little or no dietary sucrose had substantially fewer caries than individuals with a non-restricted sucrose diet. The conclusion of the study suggested a strong correlation between diet and dental caries incidence. So here's some terms to know. We're going to go through, again, I will say the term and then the definition. All right, so now we're going to actually go over inferential statistics. I'm going to say that de definition one more time. Then we'll go on into the terms and more definitions. So inferential statistics allows one to generalize findings from the sample study uh, to a larger population. Here are the terms to know. Validity, 
Degree that a study or procedure can be conclusive yet sufficiently realistic. Does the test measure what it claims to be measuring? So an example, increase in clinical attachment loss has been shown to be the best predictor of advancing periodontal disease. It is considered to be a valid way to test periodontal breakdown. Now we also have the next term, which is reliability. The extent to which the method of measurement consistently performs. There are two types of examiner reliability. The two types are intra-examiner reliability and inter-examiner reliability. So the intra is consistent performance by the same evaluator. Intra, same evaluator. The inter-examiner re reliability consists performance between different examiners. So the inter is between different examiners. Is increased by calibration. So example would be clinical facility members at Idaho State University met monthly to evaluate radiographs. Full mouth series were evaluated and assigned a grade by each individual clinical instructor. Results were compared and findings were discussed. A consensus was reached on what grade was to be assigned. Now we're going to move on to the next term, which is sensitivity. The ability of a test to correctly identify the presence of a disease. So a memory tip is the EN. N is found in both sensitivity, the word sensitivity, and presence. So if you can remember, EN is found, those letters are found in both sensitivity and the word presence. Now we're going to move on to specificity being specific. The ability of a test to identify the absence of a disease. So a memory tip here is EN is absent in specificity. <laughs> now we're going to move on to correlation coefficient. All right, so our next topic is correlation coefficient. This determines the strength of relationship between two variables, shows probable cause and effect, given as a number between positive one and negative one, positive correlation. As the value of x increases, the value of y increases. Also, as the value of x decreases, the value of y decreases, reflects a direct association between the variables. The more garlic you eat, this is an example, the more garlic you eat, the more halitosis you will have. Negative correlation. As the value of x increases, the value of y decreases. Also, as the value of x decreases, the value of y increases. The score on the one scale predicts an opposite score on the other scale. The more, this is another example, the more you brush your tongue, the less halitosis you will have. So now we're going to move on to tests used in inferential statistics. So the good news is you will not be asked to calculate these values. So I'm going to go over the test. I will say the test and then define the test. So make sure that you have these memorized. The t-test, statistical measure used to test the hypothetical difference between two mean scores. So a memory tip for this would be t stands for two. ANOVA. This is the analysis of variance used when comparing the statistical difference between three or more mean scores. So a memory tip for this one is there are more than three letters in the word ANOVA, so A-N-O-V-A. 
Now we're moving on to the p-value test, also known as a probability value. Definitely know this one. So p-value, used when testing hypothesis, refers to the probability that a condition or circumstance would happen just by chance without experimental intervention. The standard of acceptability is 1 out of 20 or a p-value of less than, less or equal to 0.05. A p-value greater than 0.05 will affect the study results. Now the next section is types of preventative services. So we have primary services, P for prevent. So it involves preventative therapies. Techniques are designed to prevent, reverse, or arrest a disease process. Common examples include mechanical plaque removal, dietary restriction of sucrose, and fluoride treatments. Now we've got secondary services. So this is treating or controlling a disease or condition after it occurs. So examples would be periodontal therapy and restorative, or restorative procedures such as composite restorations and crowns. And then also we've got tertiary services. And think of tertiary as lost tissues, so those two T's. Tertiary, tertiary lost tissues. It involves replacing lost tissues in order to re rehabilitate oral structures. The examples would include implants and bridges. All right, we're moving on to measuring oral disease. So utilizes indices to express clinical observations in numerical form, characteristics of an ideal index. So they need to be simple, valid, reliable, clear, sensitive, quantifiable, objective, and accepted. Make sure that you have those measuring oral disease uh, characteristics memorized. Let me go over them one more time. Simple, valid, reliable, clear, sensitive, quantifiable, objective, and accepted. Now we're moving on to general categories of the indices. So we've got four general categories of the indices, and it, it is reversible, irreversible, simple, and cumulative. Cumulative. So reversible is measures conditions that can be resolved or reversed. Gingivitis indices are examples. Now we also have irreversible. Measures cumulative conditions that cannot be resolved. So caries and periodontal disease are indices are examples here. Now we also have simple. Measures the presence or absence of a disease. Pretty simple. Cumulative measures all the evidence of a condition, both past and present. All right, so now get ready for some terms, some new terms, so definitely memorize these. I'll go over the term and define them. These are common dental indices. So we're gonna start off with dental caries indices. You have the DMFT or the DMFS. This means decayed missing filled teeth, decayed missing filled surfaces. This is irreversible, measures past and present, carries experience in populations with adult dentitions. Now we also have the DEFT, decayed need for extraction filled teeth. This is irreversible, measures um, observable, carries experience in deciduous teeth. 
the key does not take into account teeth that have been extracted or exfoliated due to past caries experience. Now we also have the DFT or the DFS. This is decayed filled teeth, decayed filled surfaces. This irreversible measures observable caries experience in deciduous, deciduous teeth. We also have the RCI. This is the root caries index. Also reversible, irreversible, requires recession. This one is huge. Make sure that it, it has recession. Only takes into consideration areas of root exposure. Moving on to CAMBRA or C-A-M-B-R-A. This is caries management by risk assessment. Encompasses a metho metho methodology of identifying the cause of a disease through the assessment of risk factors for each individual patient and then managing those risk factors through behavioral, chemical, and minimally invasive procedures. So that's what you need to remember for Canberra. It is, and let me read it one more time, managing those risk factors through behavioral, chemical, and minimally invasive procedures. The risk assessment in Canberra is grounded in the use of a caries risk assessment form. Several incarnations of this form exist, but the California Dental Association, the CDAs, is likely the most well-known. The form lists 24 factors that dental professionals can use to evaluate patients' level of caries risk. A separate form for pediatric patients adapts these items into a format for, for a parental questioning and clinical examination. Based on the results of the assessment form the, form, the dental team is able to easily divide patients into categories of low, moderate, high, or extreme risk, and then make informed recommendations for helping each patient prevent caries and manage existing issues. Now we're going to move on to the common gingivitis indices. All right. So the common gingivitis indices, we have the GI or the gingival index. This is reversible. This is great news. It's reversible. Based on severity versus extent of inflammation can be used in individuals or study participants. We also have the SBI or the, the Sulcular Bleeding Index. This is also reversible. Detects early signs of gingivitis. Useful in short-term trials. Moving on to periodontal indices. So periodontal indices, we have four. First is PDI, periodontal disease index, both irreversible and reversible because it measures gingivitis and periodontitis separately. Developed by Ramford. We also, the second indice is the PI or the periodontal index. This is irreversible, developed by Russell, looks, looks at surrounding tissue, questionable for validity, so that's the limitation there for the PI. Moving on to the third, which is PSR, or the periodontal screening and recording. This was used in my office. Rapidly assessing, assesses periodontal health, requires a special probe, useful as a preliminary screening technique and for use in large populations. The last one, the fourth indice is the CPITN, the Community Periodontal Index of Treatment Needs, developed by WHO, determines periodontal needs versus periodontal status, requires special probe. 
The next section is oral hygiene indices. So we have four oral hygiene indices here as well. We've got the OHIS or the Simplified Oral Hygiene Index. This is reversible, measures oral hygiene status by assessing sub and super gingival plaque and calculus. Better for group versus individual assessment. The next one or the second oral hygiene indice is the plaque index. Looks like a PLI, so it's the plaque index. It's reversible, developed by Silness and Lowe, used in conjunction with the gingival index, scores plaque according to its thickness at the gingival margin. So the plaque index, it is recording, or it's according to the thickness of the gingival margin, or at the gingival margin. The next or the third oral hygiene indice is the PHP, the patient hygiene performance. This is reversible, measures plaque after toothbrushing, assesses the patient's skill. The last oral hygiene indice is the VMI or the VOP, the VOLP manhold index. This is reversible, used to test agents for plaque control and calculus inhibition, measures supergingival calculus formation following prophylaxis. And now we're moving on to the implementing of a community program. So we're gonna go straight through and we'll, I will explain as I go. So first step in planning a program is to conduct a needs assessment. This is process by which the planner identifies gaps between what is and what ought to be. Depends on recognizing and understanding the target population that will benefit from the program. The reasons for needs assessment, we've got four different reasons here, um, defines extent and severity of problem, identifies cause, causes of problem, provides a profile of the community, and then most importantly, collects baseline data. Make sure that you remember that it collects the baseline data. Ways to conduct needs assessment. So we have direct observation, time consuming, not cost effective, requires manpower. You also have interview, it's not time or cost effective, not recommended for large groups. You also have a questionnaire, good choice for large populations, must be well written and easy to understand for the target po population. You also can do a survey, this is the best choice for large groups, must be well written and understandable. And then you have the epidemiological surveys, which these are research based. And then you have uh, records, documents, and charts, or records, do documents, and charts. This is um, access dependent and also time consuming. So now we're going to move into the needs assessment considerations. We have access to care issues, and there are four access to care issues. We have need, demand, utilization, and barriers. So I'm going to go through each of those four and describe. So we've got a need. Type of care available. So example, one dental office accepting Medicaid patients in a town of 65,000. Then we number two, the demand. The type of care desired. So for example, whitening versus restorative procedures. Number three, utilization, actual use of services available by the public. And number four, this is the barriers, obstacles which interfere with care to be provided or received. So example, lack of financial funding or low cost dental services. So out of the need assessment consideration, the first is access to care issues. The second is ways to observe the needs. The third is population profile. 
So let me back up here. We've got going back to number two. This is ways to observe the needs. So you want to, the way that you want to observe the needs through the eyes of the planner. Real needs based on health issues, and they also need to be objective. Through the eyes of the target population, this is perceived needs or wants, opinion, subjective. An example would be the study participants want whitening versus restorative procedures. Now we also have examination methods. There are four examination methods. So type one, this is comprehensive examination using mouth mirror, explorer, lighting, radiographs, study models, and any other diagnostic test that may be warranted, not practical for most community programs due to cost, time constraints, and equipment needs. Type number two, limited examination involved or including mouth mirror, explorer, lighting, and limited radiographs, Access to radiology equipment limits use in community programs. Type number three, examination using mouth mirror and lighting only. And then type number four, examination using tongue depressor and lighting only. Make sure that you know the differences between all these examination methods. Ideally, you would want type one. Um, as it's comprehensive. And now we're moving on to the third needs assessment consideration. So we've already done one, two. Now we're on three. I'll go over those again. Number one is access to care issues. Number two is ways to observe the needs. Number three now is the population profile. So population profile gathers information about the target population. Generally included a needs assessment. The information included here are the following number of individuals who will be part of the program, geographical distribution of the target population, rate of growth in the community, degree of urbanization, ethnic and language profile, nutritional status, standard of living, amount and type of community services and utilities, including public transportation available, profile of school system, public versus private, general health profile, including drug abuse patterns, and now we are moving on to planning a community program, a systematic approach involving collection of preliminary information. Now we're moving on to planning a community program, a systematic approach involving collection of preliminary information, attitudes towards oral health issues by community leaders, includes politicians, educators, school superintendents. Funding and resources, all are very board worthy here. So remember these, we've got five, Medicare, Medicaid, COBRA, block grants, and line item grant. So I'm gonna say the term and then the definition. So we've got the Medicare, which is health insurance for elderly and disabled. The Medicaid, health insurance for the poor. Both Medicare and Medicaid were created by Social Security Act of 1965. This is helpful to remember. And COBRA is the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act of 1985 requires most employers with group health plans to offer employees the opportunity to continue temporary, temporarily their group health care coverage under the employer's plan if their coverage otherwise would cease due to termination, layoff, or other change in employment status. 
a block grant, a lump sum of money given to a group to use at their discretion to meet a need. And we also have the last one. The fifth one is line item grant specifies where monies are to go to. And we also have the establishment of priorities. Rank the problems of the needs of the target population. Determine goals and objectives. So goals are broad-based statement of desired outcome of a program. So example, dental hygiene students are working to achieve their goal of becoming a registered dental hygienist. The objectives are specified statements describing the steps that must be taken to achieve the overall goal. It must be measurable. That's with any goal. It must be measurable. So an example would be graduating from an accredited program, passing the national board examination, and passing regional board examinations are objectives that prospective dental hygienists must meet in order to achieve the goal of practicing dental hygiene. Consulting and coordinating activities. Secure an appropriate facility where the program will be carried out. Obtain permission for use. Make sure the necessary manpower is in place. Supervising dentists, uh, volunteers, and clinicians. Coordinate plan of action between these involved with the program. Paperwork needs, clinical setups, length of work shifts. Now we move on to the drafting a plan. Develop a lesson plan and implementation strategy. This is board worthy. This is choose activities or procedures that have been successful in the past. Implementing the program. Carrying out the lesson plan. Things to consider here. Principles of learning, motivational factors, external motivation, promise of a, a reward, or internal motivation, change as a result of self-awareness, better predictor of behavior change. Learning only progresses as far as the learner wants. This is so true in, in all motivation. Um, learning proceeds more rapidly if what is being taught has value to the target audience. Now we're going to move into the principles of teaching. Teach the way skills are to be used. Identify learners' needs. Establish goals and object uh, objectives. Design learning strategies based on objectives. Plan on evaluation. Not only at the end of a program, evaluation needs to be ongoing. The information delivery, you have two type of deliveries, formal delivery and informal delivery. So a formal delivery would be like a lecture, demonstration, discussion, etc. Informal delivery is brochures, pamphlets, billboards, video. Now we're moving on to the stages of learning. This stuff is fun and yeah, you can use this in more than just your dental hygiene experience. This will be some fun stuff, guys. So stages of learning. Again, you can use this in more than just your dental hygiene experience. Use this when any time that you want to learn something. So stages of learning. Know the stages of learning and be able to identify what stage a learner is in. The stages of learning known as the learning ladder. And here they are as follows. So we have six stages of learning. So the first one is unawareness. The second one is awareness. The third is self-interest. The fourth is involvement. The fifth is action. And the seventh is habit. So I'm going to say the term and then we'll go through the definition. So the first one is unawareness. The learner has incomplete or inaccurate information. Number two is awareness. Correct information is obtained, but it does not have the personal meaning for the learner. 
Then we have the self-interest. The learner personalized the information. Number four is involvement. Old ideas are replaced by new ones. The learner is motivated to act. Number five is action. That's probably my favorite. The learner tests new concepts based on, pre on, on perceived needs. So the learner is putting it into action. And then the last one, the sixth one is the habit. The learner begins to experience gratification and self-satisfaction, and it is this stage that the behavior is modified. So the board tip here is to remember the order of the steps in the learning ladder. Use the mnemonic, ugly apes sit in a hut. Unawareness, awareness, self-interest, involvement, action, habit. Ugly apes sit in a hut hut. I love it. All right, we're moving on to evaluation of a program. Our next section is evaluation of a program or program appraisal. Provides information for future program revisions. Analysis whether or not the goals and objectives were met. Maybe formal or informal. So formal would be um, a written pre and post test. An informal would be, for an example, questioning audience during a presentation. Evaluation must be continuous from the beginning of the program. This is very important. In order to conduct an evaluation after a program has been implemented, it is necessary to have baseline data from the needs assessment to determine a group's progress. The items to be evaluated are as follows. Effectiveness and efficacy of the program, appropriateness of the program for the target audience, educational and instructional materials, organization planning of the program, behaviors and attitudes of learners and administrators. These uh, were the objectives met. That's the most important part there. There's also types of evaluation. We've got For the types of evaluation, we have summative and formative. So the summative is outcome, evaluation, measures, impact of program, slash teaching. An example would be comprehensive final examination. And then you have the formative conducted during the program, making sure audience is engaged. So example, asking learners if they understand a concept before moving on to another topic. If it is apparent that the audience is not responding to the teaching activity, formative evaluation allows the teacher to make the necessary adjustments. Now we're moving on to summary of events for a community program. So here we have four steps for the summary of events for a community program. First, I'm going to say all four steps, then I'll go back and we will do the examples and definitions. So step one is the needs assessment. Step two is planning a community project. Step three is implementation of community program. Step four is a program evaluation. So this is wrapping it all up, guys. We're almost there. So going back up, step one, needs assessment, considerations. Access to care issues, observation of target population's needs, determination of examination methods, types one, two, three, four. Gather information about target group, population profile. 
Now that was step one. Let's move on to step two, planning a community project. Considerations here, collection of preliminary information, including project funding, establishment of priorities, determine goals and objectives, coordination of activities, program site selection, volunteers needed, etc. Lesson plan and implementation strategy. All of that is within step two, which is the planning a community project. Moving on to step three, this is the implementation of community program. Considerations here are motivational, internal versus external factors, teaching principles, including the learning ladder. Those both are in the step three, which is the implementation of community program. Step four, this is the program evaluation considerations here. Analyze whether the goals and objectives were met. It can be formal or informal. Know this must be continuous from start to finish. Program evaluation must be continuous from start to finish, dependent on baseline data from the needs assessment. We're going to end here with some more helpful hints. So I'm going to run through those helpful hints and then we're done. So helpful hint is know how dental procedures compare to community dental health procedures. So example, treatment planning in the dental setting is comparable to program planning in the community setting. The primary international organization devoted to health issues is the World Health Organization or the WHO. Two primary federal organizations concerned with health problems is in the U.S. are Department of Health and Human Services, the DHHS, and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that is the CDC. A longitudinal study may be considered both retrospective and prospective. The majority of scores, 68%, on a normal Normal curve will fall between positive one and negative one, standard deviation. Any index that examines surfaces instead of affected teeth is more sensitive. Think surface equals sensitivity. True for indices examining permanent or deciduous teeth. All right, guys, we're done. So do a little celebration and rest your mind before we go on to the next section so the next section that we will do is so you can be prepping your brain drum roll please mm. so the next section is on dental materials. So we will see you there for dental materials.